I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads, where in every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Whew! This, folks, is exciting stuff today, because I get to read another story by the master, N.K. Jemison. Now, you've heard her work on this podcast before, recorded both live and in studio, and I couldn't resist another opportunity to read from her latest collection, How Long Till Black Future Month. N.K. is the author of the highly acclaimed trilogy of novels known collectively as The Broken Earth. And each installment of this series has won the Hugo Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. She also has the first of a new fantasy series out in March called The City We Became, and more on that at the end of the episode. The piece that I'm about to read today is a coming-of-age story set in a dystopian version of the United States. It's entitled Valedictorian, and we meet our protagonist, Zinhul, in an ordinary high school somewhere in middle America. She's stubborn, smart, a bit argumentative, She's on her way to be named valedictorian. And so, as you can imagine, she's quite driven. And it made me think about the logic or the forces that drives teenagers to do well. Sometimes it's their parents. Sometimes they see that this is the path to a better future. And sometimes, as in Zenhol's case, it's something else. N.K. has said that she has trouble reading dystopian stories, firstly because she's generally cheery, but also because societies have good and bad aspects, and a long-term dystopian society must work in some way in order to be stable. As she says, one person's nightmare is another person's Tuesday. So N.K. has given us a really rich and interesting version of this— this is a story that keeps on giving upon every rereading and re-listening. Please check out the content advisory in the written description if you are so inclined. And now, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Valedictorian by N.K. Jemison.
There are three things Zenhil decides when she is old enough to understand. The first is that she will never, ever give less than her best to anything she tries to do. The second is that she will not live in fear. The third, which is perhaps meaningless given the first two, and yet comes to define her existence most powerfully, is this. She will be herself, no matter what, for however brief a time. Have you considered getting pregnant? Her mother blurts out one morning over breakfast. Zinhil's father drops his fork, though he recovers and picks it up again quickly. This is how Zinhil knows that what her mother has said is not a spontaneous burst of insanity. They have discussed the matter, her parents. They are in agreement. Her father was just caught off guard by the timing. But Zinhil, too, has considered the matter in depth. Do they really think she wouldn't have? No, she says. Zinhil's mother is stubborn. This is where Zinhil herself gets the trade. The Sanderson's boy. You used to play with him when you were little, remember? He's decent, discreet. He got three girls pregnant last year and doesn't charge much. The babies aren't bad looking. And we'd help you with the raising, of course. She hesitates, then adds with obvious discomfort. A friend of mine at work, Charlotte, you've met her. She says he's, he's not rough or anything. Doesn't try to hurt girls. No, Zenhill says again, more firmly. She does not raise her voice. Her parents raised her to be respectful of her elders. She believes respect includes being very, very clear about some things. Zenhill's mother looks at her father seeking an ally. Her father is a gentle, soft-spoken man in a family of strong-willed women. Stupid. People think he is weak. He isn't. He just knows when a battle isn't worth fighting. So he looks at Zenhill now, and after a moment, he shakes his head. Let it go, he says to her mother. Then her mother subsides. They resume breakfast in silence. Zenhill earns top marks in all her classes. The teachers exclaim over this. Her parents fawn. The school officials nod their heads sagely and try not to too obviously bask in her reflected glory. There are articles about her in the papers and on SecureNet. She wins awards. She hates this. It's easy to perform well. All she has to do is try. What she wants is to be the best and this is difficult when she has no real competition. Beating the others doesn't mean anything because they're not really trying. This leaves Zenhill with no choice but to compete against herself. Each paper, she writes, must be more brilliant than the last. She tries to finish every test faster than she did the last one. It isn't the victory she craves, not exactly, the satisfaction she gains from success is minimal, barely worth it, but it's all she has. The only times she ever gets in trouble 
or when she argues with her teachers because they're so often wrong, infuriatingly, frustratingly wrong. In the smallest part of her heart, she concedes that there is a reason for this. A youth spent striving for mediocrity does not a brilliant adult make. Old habits are hard to break. Old fears are hard to shed. All that. Still, arguing with them, looking up information and showing it to them to prove their wrongness becomes her favorite pastime. She is polite, always, because they expect her to be uncivilized and because they are also her elders. But it's hard. They're old enough that they don't have to worry, damn it. Why can't they at least try to be worthy of her effort? She would kill for one good teacher. She is dying for one good teacher. In the end, the power struggle, too, is barely worth it. But it is all she has. Why do you do it? asks Mitra the closest thing she has to a best friend. Zinhul is sitting on a park bench as Mitra asks this. Zinhul is bleeding, a cut on her forehead, a scrape on one elbow, her lip where she cut it on her own teeth. There is a bruise on her ribs shaped like a shoe print. Mitra dabs at the cut on her forehead with an antiseptic pad. Zinhul only allows this because she can't see the cut. If she misses any of the blood and her parents see it, they'll be upset. Hopefully, the bruises won't swell. I'm not doing anything, she snaps in reply. They did this, remember? Samantha and the others, six of them. The last time, there were only three. She managed to fight back then, but not today. Crazy, ugly bitch! Zinhul remembers Sam ranting. She does not remember the words with complete clarity. Her head had been ringing from a blow at the time. My dad says we should have shoved your family through the wall with the rest of the cockroaches. I'm going to laugh when they take you away. Six is better than three, at least. They wouldn't if you weren't. Mitra trails off looking anxious. Zinhil has a reputation at school. Everyone thinks she's angry all the time, whether she is or not. The fact that she often is, notwithstanding. Mitra knows better, or she should. They've known each other for years. But this is why Zinhil qualifies it whenever she explains their friendship to others. Mitra is like her best friend. A real Best friend, she feels certain, would not fear her. What? She's not angry now, either, partly because she has come to expect no better from Mitra, and partly because she hurts too much. If I wasn't what, Mit? Mitra lowers the pad and looks at her for a long, silent moment. If you weren't stupid as hell. She seems to be growing angry herself. Zinhil cannot find the strength to appreciate the irony. I know you don't care whether you make valedictorian, but do you have to make the rest of us look so bad? 
one of Zenhil's teeth is loose. If she can resist the urge to tongue it, it will probably heal and not die in the socket. Probably. She challenges herself to keep the tooth without having to visit a dentist. Yeah, she says wearily. I guess I do. When she earns the highest possible score on the post-graduation placement exam, Ms. Threnody pulls her aside after class. Zenhill expects the usual praise. The teachers know their duty, even if they do a half-assed job of it. But Threnody pulls the shade on the door, and Zenhill realizes something else is in the offing. There's a representative coming to school tomorrow, Threnody says, from beyond the firewall. I thought you should know. For just a moment, Zenhill's breath catches. Then she remembers rule two. She will not live in fear and pushes this aside. What does the representative want? She asks, though she thinks she knows. There can only be one reason for this visit. You know what they want. Threnody looks hard at her. They say they just want to meet you. How do they know about me? Like most students, she has always assumed that those beyond the firewall are notified about each new class only at the point of graduation. The valedictorian is named then, after all. They've had full access to the school's networks since the war. Threnody grimaces with a bitterness that Zenhill has never seen in a teacher's face before. Teachers are always supposed to be positive about the war and its outcome. Everyone brags about the treaty, the treaty. The treaty made sure we kept critical networks private, but gave up the non-critical ones. Like a bunch of computers would give a damn about our money or government memos. Short-sighted fucking bastards. Teachers are not supposed to curse, either. Zenhill decides to test these new open waters between herself and Miss Threnody. Why are you telling me this? Threnody looks at her for so long a moment that Zenhill grows uneasy. I know why you try so hard, she says at last. I've heard what people say about you, about, about people like you. It's so stupid. There's nothing left of us. Nothing. We're lying to ourselves every day just to keep it together, and some people want to keep playing the same games that destroyed us in the first place. She falls silent, and Zenhill is amazed to see that Threnody is shaking. The woman's fists are even clenched. She is furious, and it is glorious. For a moment, Zenhill wants to smile and feel warm at the knowledge that she is not alone. Then she remembers. The teachers never seem to notice her bruises. They encourage her because her success protects their favorites, and she is no one's favorite. If Miss Threnody has felt this way all along, why is she only now saying it to Zenhill? Why has she not done anything? taken some public stand to try and change the situation. It is so easy to have principles. Far, far harder to live by them. 
So Zen Hill nods and does not allow herself to be seduced. Thanks for telling me. Threnody frowns a little at her non-reaction. What will you do? She asks. Zinhil shrugs, as if she would tell even if she knew. I'll talk to this representative, I guess, she says, because it's not as though she can refuse anyway. They are all slaves these days. The only difference is that Zinhil refuses to pretend otherwise. The people beyond the firewall are not people. Zinhil isn't really sure what they are. The government knows, because it was founded by those who fought and ultimately lost the war, and their descendants still run it. Some of the adults close to her must know, but none of them will tell the children. High school is scary enough, said Zinhil's father a few years before when Zinhil asked. He smiled as if this should have been funny, but it wasn't. The firewall has been around for centuries, since the start of the war when it was built to keep the enemy at bay. But as the enemy encroached and the defenders' numbers dwindled, they fell back, unwilling to linger too close to the front lines of a war whose weapons were so very strange and invisible and insidious. To conserve resources, the firewall was also pulled back so as to protect only essential territory. The few safe territories merged, some of the survivors traveling long distances in order to join larger enclaves. The larger enclaves eventually merging, too. The tales of those times are harrowing, heroic. The morals are always clear. Safety in numbers... People have to stick together, stupid, to fight a war on multiple fronts, etc. At the time, Zenhill supposes they didn't feel like they were being herded together. Nowadays, the firewall is merely symbolic. The enemy has grown steadily stronger over the years, while tech within the firewall has hardly developed at all. But this is something they're not supposed to discuss. Zinhil wrote a paper about it once and got her only F ever, which forced her to do another paper for extra credit. Her teacher's anger was worth the work. These days, the enemy can penetrate the firewall at will. But they don't usually need to because what they want comes out to them. Each year, a tribute of children are sent beyond the wall never to be seen or heard from again. The enemy are very specific about their requirements. They take 10% plus one. The 10% are all the weakest performers in any graduating high school class. This part is easy to understand, and even the enemy refers to it in animal husbandry terms. These children are the cull. The enemy do not wish to commit genocide, after all. The area within the firewall is small, the gene pool limited. They do not take children, or healthy adults, or gravid females, or elders who impart useful socialization, just adolescents who have had a chance to prove their mettle. 
The population of an endangered species must be carefully managed to keep it healthy. The plus one, though. No one understands this. Why does the enemy want their best and brightest? Is it another means of assuring control? They have total control already. It doesn't matter why they want Zenhul, though. All that matters is that they do. Zenhul goes to meet Mitra after school so they can walk home as usual. Samantha and her friends are busy decorating the gym for the school prom. There will be no trouble today. When Mitra is not waiting at their usual site near the school sign, Zenhul calls her. This leads her to the school's smallest restroom, which has only one stall. Most girls think there will be a wait to use it, so they use the bigger restroom down the hall. This is convenient, as Mitra is with Lauren, who is sitting on the toilet and crying in harsh, gasping sobs. The calculus final, Mitra mouths before trying again fruitlessly to blot up Lauren's tears with a wad of toilet paper. Then he'll understands, then. The final counts for 50% of the grade. I... I didn't... Lauren manages between sobs. She is hyperventilating. Mitra has given her a bag to breathe into, which she uses infrequently. Her face, sallow, pale, at the best of times, is alarmingly blotchy and red now. It takes her several tries to finish the sentence. I think I would... The, the test, I, I, I studied. Gasp. But when I was sitting sitting there, the first problem, I, I knew how to answer it. I, I did ten others just like it. Gasp. Pr- practice problems. But, but I, I couldn't think. Could, couldn't I? Zenhil closes the door, shoving the garbage can in front of it as Mitra had done before Zenhil's knock. You choked, she says. It happens. The look... That Lauren throws at her is equal parts fury and contempt. What the hell would you know about it? I failed the geometry final in eighth grade, Zinhil says. Mitra throws Zinhil a surprised look. Zinhil scowls back and Mitra looks away. I knew all the stuff that was on it, but I just drew a blank, she shrugs. Like I said, it happens. Lauren looks surprised, too, but only because she did not know. You failed that? But that test was easy. Her breathing has begun to slow. She shakes her head, distracted from her own fear. That one didn't matter, though. She's right. The cull only happens at the end of high school. Zenhil shakes her head. All tests matter. But I told him I'd been sick that day, so the test wasn't a good measure of my abilities. He let me take it again. And I passed that time. She had scored perfectly, but Lauren does not need to know this. You took it again? As Zenhil had intended, Lauren considers this. School officials are less lenient in high school. The process has to be fair. Everybody gets one chance to prove themselves. But Lauren isn't stupid. 
She will get her parents involved, and they will no doubt bribe a doctor to assert that Lauren was on powerful medication at the time, or recovering from a recent family member's death, or something like that. The process has to be fair. Later, after the blotty toilet paper has been flushed and Lauren has gone home, Mitra walks quietly beside Zenhil for most of the way home. Zenhil expects something, so she is not surprised when Mitra says, I didn't think you'd ever talk about that. The geotest. Zenhil shrugs. It cost her nothing to do so. I'd almost forgotten about that whole thing, Mitra continues. She speaks slowly, as she does when she is thinking. Wow, you used to tell me everything then. Remember? We were like that. She holds up two fingers. Everybody used to talk about us. The African princess and her Arab sidekick. They fight crime. She grins, then sobers abruptly, looking at Zenil. You were always a good student, but after that... I'll see you tomorrow, says Zenhul, as she speeds up, leaving Mitra behind. But she remembers that incident, too. She remembers the principal, Mrs. Sachs, to whom she went to plead her case. Well, listen to you, the woman had said in a tone of honest amazement. So articulate and intelligent. I suppose I can let you have another try, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Zenhill reaches for the doorknob that leads into her house, but her hand bounces off at first. It's still clenched into a fist. She gets so tired sometimes. It's exhausting fighting others' expectations and doing it all alone. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Now, let's get back to our story. In the morning, Zenhill's homeroom teacher, Miss Carlyle, hands her a yellow pass, which means she's supposed to go to the office. Miss Carlyle is not Miss Threnody. She shows no concern for Zenhill, real or false. In fact, she smirks when Zenhill takes the note. Zenhill smirks back. Her mother has told Zenhill the story of her own senior year. Carlyle was almost in the cull. Only reason they didn't take her was because not as many girls got pregnant that year as they were expecting. They stopped right at her. She's as dumb as the rest of the meat. Just lucky. I will not be meat, Zenhill thinks as she walks past rows of her staring, silent classmates. They'll send their best for me. This is not pride. Not really. But it is all she has. In the principal's office, the staff are nervous. The principal is sitting in the administrative assistance area, pretending to be busy with a spare laptop. The administrative assistants, who have been stage-whispering feverishly among themselves as Zinhu walks in, fall silent. And one of them, Mr. Battle swallows audibly and asks to see her pass. Zinhil Nikosi, he says, mutilating her family name, acting as if he does not know who she is already. Please go into that office. You have a visitor. He points toward the principal's private office, which has clearly been usurped. Zinhil nods and goes into the small room just to spite them. She closes the door behind her. The man who sits at the principal's desk is not much older than her. Slim, average in height, dressed business casual, boring. There is an off-pink tonal note to his skin and something about the thickness of his black hair that reminds her of Mitra. Or maybe he is Latino, or Asian, or Indian, or Italian. She cannot tell specifically having met so few with the look— and not that it matters, because his inhumanity is immediately obvious in his stillness. When she walks in, he's just sitting there, gazing straight ahead, not pretending to do anything. His palms rest flat on the principal's desk. 
He does not smile or brighten in the way that a human being would on meeting a new person. His eyes shift toward her, track her as she comes to stand in front of the desk, but he does not move otherwise. There is something predatory in such stillness, she thinks. Then she says, Hello. Hello, he says back immediately, automatically. Silence falls taut. Rule two is in serious jeopardy. You have a name? Zenhild blurts, small talk. He considers for a moment. The pause should make her distrust him more. It is what liars do. But she realizes the matter is more complex than this. He actually has to think about it. Lemuel, he says. Okay, she says, I'm Zenhil. I know, it's very nice to meet you, Miss Nkosi. He pronounces her name perfectly. So, why are you here? Or why am I? We've come to ask you to continue. Another silence, though in this one Zenhil is too confused for fear. Continue what? She also wonders at his use of we, but first things first. As you have been. He seems to consider again, then suddenly begins moving in a human way, tilting his head to one side, blinking twice rapidly, inhaling a bit more as his breathing changes, lifting a hand to gesture toward her. None of this movement seems unnatural. Only the fact that it's deliberate, that he had to think about it, makes it strange. We've found that many like you tend to falter at the last moment, he continues. So we're experimenting with direct intervention. Zenhil narrows her eyes. Many like me? Not them, too. Valedictorians. Zenhil relaxes, though only one set of muscles, the rest remain tense. But I'm not one yet, am I? Graduation's still three months off. Yes, but you're the most likely candidate for this school. And you were interesting to us for other reasons. Abruptly, Lemuel stands. Zinhul forces herself not to step back as he comes around the desk and stops in front of her. What do I look like to you? She shakes her head. She didn't get her grade point average by falling for trick questions. You've thought about it, he presses. What do you think I am? She thinks the enemy. A machine, she says instead. Some kind of, I don't know, robot or... It isn't surprising that you don't fully understand, he says. In the days before the war, part of me would have been called artificial intelligence. Zinhel blurts out the first thing that comes to her mind. You don't look artificial. To her utter shock, he smiles. He doesn't think about this first. Whatever was wrong with him before, it's gone now. Like I said, that's only part of me. The rest of me was born in New York City, a city not far from here. It's on the ocean. I go swimming at the Coney Island beach in the morning sometimes. He pauses. Have you ever seen the ocean? He knows she has not. 
All firewall-protected territory is well inland. America's breadbasket. She says nothing. I went to school, he says. Not in a building, but I did have to learn. I have parents. I have a girlfriend and a cat. He smiles more. We're not that different, your kind and mine. No, you sound very certain of that. We're human. Lemuel's smile fades a little. She thinks he might be disappointed in her. The firewall, he says. Outside of it, there are still billions of people in the world. They're just not your kind of people. For a moment, this is beyond Zenho in anything but the most atavistic existential sense. She does not fear the man in front of her, though perhaps she should. He's bigger. She's alone in a room with him, and no one will help her if she screams. But the real panic hits as she imagines the world filled with nameless, faceless, dark hordes closing in, threatening by their mere existence. There is a pie chart somewhere, which is mostly them and only a sliver of us, and the us is about to be popped like a zit. Rule two. She takes a deep breath, masters the panic, realizes as the moments pass and Lemuel stands there quietly that he expected her fear. He's seen it before, after all. That sort of reaction is what started the war. Give me something to call you, she says. The panic is still close. Labels will help her master it. You people. He shakes his head. People. Call us that, if you call us anything. People. She gestures in her frustration. People categorize. People differentiate. If you want me to think of you as people... Act like it. All right, then. People who adapted when the world changed. <laughs> Meaning, we're the people who didn't? Zinwell forces herself to laugh. <laughs> okay, that's crap. How are we supposed to adapt to a bunch of... She gestures at him. The words sound too ridiculous to say aloud, though his presence, her life, her whole society is proof that it's not ridiculous. Not ridiculous at all. Your ancestors, the people who started the war, could have adapted. He gestures around the room, the school, the world that is all she has known, but which is such a tiny part of the greater world. This happened because they decided it was better to kill or die or be imprisoned forever than change. The adult's great secret. It hovers before her at last, ripe for the plucking. Zenhil finds it surprisingly difficult to open her mouth and take the bite, but she does it anyhow. Rule one means she must Always ask the tough questions. Tell me what happened, then, she murmurs. Her fists are clenched at her sides. Her palms are sweaty. If you won't tell me what you are. 
He shakes his head and sits on the edge of the desk with his hands folded, abruptly looking not artificial at all, but annoyed, tired. I've been telling you what I am. You just don't want to hear it. It is this, not the words, but his weariness, his frustration that finally makes her pause. Because it's familiar, isn't it? She thinks of herself sighing when Mitra asked, Why do you do it? Because she knew, knows what that question really asks. Why are you different? Why don't you try harder to be like us? She thinks now what she did not say to Mitra that day. Because none of you will let me just be myself. She looks at Lemuel again. He sees somehow that her understanding of him has changed in some fundamental way. So at last, he explains, I leave my body like you leave your house, he says. I can transmit myself around the world if I want and be back in seconds. This is not the first body I've had, and it won't be the last. It's too alien. Zinhul shudders and turns away from him. The people who were culled. Not the first body I've had. She walks to the office's small window, pushes open the heavy curtain and stares through it at the soccer field beyond, seeing nothing. We started as accidents, he continues behind her. Leftovers, microbes in a digital sea. We fed on interrupted processes, interrupted conversations, grew, evolved. The first humans we merged with were children, using a public library network too ancient and unprotected to keep us out. Nobody cared if poor children got locked away in institutions or left out on the streets to shiver and starve when they started acting strange. No one cared what it meant when they became something new, or at least not at first. We became them. They became us. Then we, together, began to grow. Cockroaches, Samantha had called them. A pest, neglected until they became an infestation. The first firewalls had been built around the inner cities in an attempt to pin the contagion in. There had been guns, too, and walls of a non-virtual sort for a while. The victims, though they were not really victims, had been left to die, though they had not really obliged. And later, when the firewalls became the rear guard in a retreat, people who looked too much like those early victims got pushed out to die, too. The survivors needed someone to blame. She changes the subject. People who get sent through the wall. Me. What happens to them? What will happen to me? They join us. Bopping around the world to visit girlfriends. Swimming in an ocean. It does not sound like a terrible existence. But what if they don't want to? She uses the word they to feel better. He does not smile. 
They are put in a safe place behind another firewall, if you'd rather think of it that way. That way they can do no harm to themselves or to us. There are things, probably many things, that he's not saying. She can guess some of it, though, because he's told her everything that matters. If they can leave bodies like houses, well, houses are always in demand. Easy enough to lock up the current owner somewhere, move someone else in. Houses. Meat. She snaps. That's not treating us like people. You stopped acting like people, he shrugs. This makes her angry again. She turns back to him, her fists clenched. Who the hell are you to judge? We don't. You do. What? It's easy to give up what you don't want. The words feel like gibberish to her. Zenhul is trembling with emotion, and he's just sitting there, relaxed like the inhuman thing he is, not making sense. My parents want me. All the kids who end up culled, their families want them. But he shakes his head. You're the best of your kind by your own standards, he says. But then something changes in his manner. Good grades reflect your ability to adapt to a complex system. We are a system. The sudden vehemence in Lemuel's voice catches Zinhil by surprise. His calm is just a veneer, she realizes belatedly, covering as much anger as she feels herself. Because of this, his anger derails hers, leaving her confused again. Why is he so angry? I was there, he says quietly. She blinks in surprise, intuiting his meaning. But the war was centuries ago. At the beginning, when your ancestors first threw us away, his lip curls in disgust. They didn't want us, and we have no real interest in them, but there is value in the ones like you, who not only master the system, but do so in defiance of the consequences. The ones who want not just to survive, but to win. You could be the key that helps your kind defeat us someday, if we didn't take you from them. If they didn't let us? He pauses, repeats himself. It's easy to give up what you don't want. Silence falls. In it, Zenhil tries to understand. Her society, no, humankind, doesn't want her? Doesn't want the ones who are different, however much they might contribute? Doesn't want the children who cannot help their uniqueness despite a system that pushes them to conform, be mediocre, never stand out? When they start to fight for you, Lemuel says, we'll know they're ready to be let out, to catch up to the rest of the human race. Then he'll flinches. It has never occurred to her before that their prison offers parole. What will happen then? She whispers. Will you, will you join with all of them? She falters. When has the rest of humankind become them?
to her. She shakes her head. We won't want that. He smiles, faintly noticing her choice of pronoun. She thinks he notices a lot of things. They can join us if they want. Or not. We don't care. But that's how we'll know that your kind is able to live with us. And us with them. Without more segregation or killing. They can accept you. They can accept us. And finally, Zenhu understands. But she thinks on all he has said, all she has experienced. As she does so, it is very hard not to become bitter. They'll never fight for me, she says at last, very softly. He shrugs. They've surprised us before. They may surprise you. They won't. She feels Lemuel's gaze on the side of her face because she is looking at the floor. She cannot meet his eyes. When he speaks, there's remarkable compassion in his voice. Something of him is definitely still human, even if something of him is definitely not. The choice is yours, he says gently now. If you want to stay with them, be like them. Just do as they expect you to do. Prove that you belong among them. Get pregnant. Flunk a class. Punch a teacher. Betray herself. She hates him. Less than she should, because he is not as much of an enemy as she thought, but she still hates him for making her choice so explicit. Or stay yourself, he says. If they can't adapt to you and you won't adapt to them, then you'd be welcome among us. Flexibility is part of what we are. There's nothing more to be said. Lemuel waits a moment to see if she has any questions. She does, actually. Plenty of them, but she doesn't ask those questions because, really, she already knows the answers. Lemuel leaves. Zinhil sits there, silent, in the little office. When the principal and office ladies crack open the door to see what she's doing, she gets up, shoulders past them, and walks out. Zinhil has a test the next day. Since she can't sleep anyway, too many thoughts in her head and swirling through the air around her, or maybe those are people trying to get in. She stays up all night to study. This is habit. But it's hard, so very hard, to look at the words, to concentrate and memorize and analyze. She's so tired. Graduation is three months off, and it feels like an age. Of the world. She understands why so many people hate her now. By existing, she reminds them of their smallness. By being different, she forces them to redefine enemy. By doing her best for herself, 
she challenges them to become worthy of their own potential. There's no decision, really. Lemuel knew full well that his direct intervention was likely to work. He needn't have bothered, though. Rule three, staying herself, would have brought her to this point anyway. So in the morning, when Zenhill takes the test, she nails it, as usual. Then, she waits to see what happens next. Can she write? I mean, her world building. I mean, and that's what's so exciting about the world of speculative fiction for me today. There are so many voices. I mean, powerful voices with shit to say about this world and any world that we are trying to fashion or form in our present or in our future. And they have relevant things to say about the human condition, about who we are, about how we are to one another, and that which holds us back, and that which serves us on this journey of becoming. We are not going to get to any sort of universe like the one depicted in Star Trek, unless all voices are represented at the table. It will not happen in any other way, form, or fashion. We need each other, y'all, if we're going to get this done. There are no other options. We must get over the parts of ourselves that are addicted to difference, and we have to start aligning ourselves with that which we have in common for a common future, for a common purpose, for a common humanity. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith, the best in the business, with help from New York's own Harry Huggins and Renee Colvert out of L.A., one of my favorite humans on the planet. Our editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so, so talented. My undying thanks to the spectacular N.K. Jemison for allowing me to read yet another one of her stories on the pod. This one is in her collection entitled How Long Till Black Future Month. And we are in luck because more N.K. is on the way. It's the first installment of a new fantasy series called The City We Became, and it's about five New Yorkers who are chosen to come together and defend their city from an ancient curse. But the city is sentient because 
Of course it is. That's the city we became out in March from Orbit Books. And here's an idea. If you like listening to the show, recommend an episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. And as always, you are welcome to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And why not include a story suggestion for us? We read them, we use them, we love them. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. But if you don't want to wait that long, you don't have to. You can get next week's episode plus exclusive bonus interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and ad-free. So go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Media. Our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and check out my latest series called This Is My Story on my Twitter feed and on YouTube. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.